0: Good morning, everyone. Today, of course, we're going to look at the uh, story of the woman at the well. And uh, for the most part, we're going to be guided by the outline that was just read to us uh, in John 4. And that's great. I think most of you are familiar with the story. Uh, A couple of things. First of all, uh, I'm going to ask all the men to think like a woman. I know that's difficult. You'll never get it right. But try. Okay. Okay. What I'm trying to say to you here today is that we are all the woman at the well. Keep that in mind as we go through this story, because it applies to each and every one of us here. The second thing is that you'll notice that today is a little bit different from past uh, sermons that you've heard at the front. Uh, All the people before me had someone to speak about that had a name. There was Nicodemus, Barnabas, John, John. That type of thing. Most of them had positions that were fairly high, fairly elevated in uh, religious circles and in the circles of uh, politics and hierarchy of the day. I have a woman. No name. And that's why I say it can apply to each and every one of you. So it's apparent through this passage that there are two main characters in Jesus and the woman, although there are other people that are mentioned. Uh, there are also two very different views of life and how to live that life. Uh, I'd like to take a slightly different approach at this passage as I normally do, and I want to use it in the context of one single word, and that word is contrarian. You've heard of Conan the Barbarian. I'm going to speak about Jesus the contrarian, and let's see if we can figure out where that comes from. Uh, There may be a few of us here today who think of themselves as a contrarian, and uh, I'm hoping by the end of the day you'll all feel that way. The word contrarian applies to a person who opposes or rejects popular opinion, one who goes against current practice. Simple as that. And Jesus did that. He did that over and over and over again. And I'll give you a little, a little statement here that reflects on Jesus and his contrarianism. I refuse to cut corners, which is why I lost my job as a carpenter. Think about that. I refuse to cut corners. Jesus never cut corners. He knew the purpose. He knew the will that God had for him. And he stuck to it. And that's what's happening here today. In today's passage, Jesus never does things the way other people would. He approaches everything in a different light through the eyes of someone who's looking from above, not looking from the side or from in front of you. We're going to be looking at uh, four different areas, the geographical and historical setting of this meeting between the woman and Jesus, and I'm going to spend a fair bit of time there because I think it's important to understand why Jews and Samaritans didn't get along and why it wasn't just between one person and another, but between whole nations. I want to talk about the character and the purpose of both Jesus and the woman. I want to discuss a little bit about the results of the meeting and how we can apply it today in what we do. And once again, that's where you have to become a woman for a short period of time here. Okay, so we've read the verses here, and it talks about the Lord baptizing, not really baptizing, but his disciples baptizing. And he's getting attention. He's getting attention from everybody. And he knows that it's not quite time for him to confront these people, so he moves on to Galilee. Verse 4 says, but he needed to go through Galilee. That's what my Bible says. And the Greek words that are used here indicate that it is necessary, there is a need of, it behooves, it is right and proper to go through Samaria. I don't know how much you can see of this map, but there's a green line going through the middle. Samaria is the yellow blob in the middle. And Jacob's well is sort of in the center of that. The traditional route for people to go from Jerusalem or Ephraim up to Nazareth and Galilee is to cross the River Jordan and to go up along the side of the Jordan River and to cross up near the Sea of Galilee at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. That keeps them out of the Samaritan territory and out of the conflicts that we're going to discuss a little bit. But Jesus says he needed to go to Samaria. Now he's not traveling alone. He's traveling with his disciples and they follow him to Samaria. This map shows the geographical setting that he's in with the green lines indicating the route that he's going to take. I find this a little bit foundational as to who Jesus is. While there isn't much argument about why he left Galilee, the question is why did he have to go through Samaria? He could have done that at any time. He could have avoided it altogether, never going there. This would mean avoiding the people of Samaria and the enemy of the Jews. But yet he chose to confront people. Now he's leaving an area where he's been confronted, where he's a little bit concerned about the confrontation that he's already received. And he's going to go to another country? And get that same treatment? At least you would think he's going to get that same treatment. Here's another map that's just a little bit different. And it does show some of the other cities that we talked about. Okay, you can see Mount of Olives and Jericho, that type of thing. It gives you a little bit of a distance there. But I want to talk about the historical legacy between these two nations. And what is the link? Why did the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other such? Well the feelings of ill were probably back before the separation of the northern and southern Jewish kingdoms. Uh after the separation of Judah and Israel in the ninth century, so we're talking a long time before Jesus came along. Okay? King Omri of the northern kingdom uh bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar, and that's in first Kings sixteen twenty four if you want to find that in your Bible. He built there the city of Samaria, which became his capital. Now, it was strong defensively, and it turned out to be uh, the road that goes through the area between Jerusalem and Galilee. Uh, it run, runs along uh, the mountain, and it is the main road. It was easily defensible, and so it was of very much importance to King Omri. In 722, which is about 180 years later, the city fell to the Assyrians and became the headquarters of the Assyrian province of Samarina. And while many of the inhabitants of the city stayed, uh, many left, but there was sort of uh, intermarriages between the Samarians, uh, the Jews, uh, people from Mesopotamia, Assyria, that type of thing. Chapter 17 of the second book of Kings tells how the king of Assyria sent a priest among the exiles to teach the Samaritans how to worship God because they were worshiping other gods as well. This occurred after an attack by lions was attributed to their failure as a people to worship the proper god of the land. It seems like a little thing. It doesn't seem like it's all that important. But when you put it in context of the whole story, you can see how one side is starting to uh, become alienated from the other. Uh, also accounted during this time is the mixed worships uh, for many other gods other than Yahweh. When Cyrus permitted the Jews to return from the Babylonian exile many years later, the Samaritans were ready to welcome them back, but the exiled Jews despised the Samaritans and called them heathens and pagans and rejected their help when it came to building the temple in Jerusalem. This is sort of the beginning of the end between the two of them. The beginning of major political hostility and opposition. Subsequently, the Samaritans tried to undermine the Jews with the Persian rulers by slowing the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple. Even later, Nehemiah tells us, for example, in chapter 13, 28, and 29, that a grandson of the high priest, Elashabib, had married a daughter, Sanballat, the governor of the province of Samaria, for defiling the priesthood by marrying a non-Jewish woman. Nehemiah drove Elashabab from Jerusalem. Sanballat, in retaliation, then had a temple built on Mount Gerizim, in which his son-in-law, Elashabab, could function. So when you hear the lady at the well, the woman at the well, talking about the two different places to worship, you know where that came from. It came from that separation between the two, the two functions. Much later, the Samaritans themselves allied themselves with the Seleucids in the Maccabean Wars of 108 B.C., so about 400 years closer to Jesus again. Now they're on the wrong side. The Jews destroyed the Samaritan Temple and ravished the territory. And even later, in the time near the time of Jesus' birth, for example, A band of Samaritans profaned the temple of Jerusalem by scattering bones of dead people in the sanctuary. And the dislike continues. So here we are about 33 years, 35 years after that. Jesus decides he's going to Samaria. And what she says is right. The fact that there was such dislike and hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans over such a long time, more than 900 years, makes you question why he would want to go through that country. He just left turmoil. He left confrontation. He left people who were angry at him, people who were confused, people who questioned him, what he wanted to do. And yet he goes to Samaria. And he takes his disciples with him. So we're at the section now where his disciples move on to get food. I'm not sure why all the disciples went. Just Jesus is left behind at the well. Now, I'm sure that the disciples were tired as well, but they went to get food. Jesus stays at the well. She comes along, and he simply asks her for a drink. And this is the beginning of the story. But you can see through the historical and geographical setting that there's already conflict before the discussion begins. So now we get to the interpersonal setting of Jesus and the woman. So with those centuries of opposition, uh, we can understand the surprise of the Samaritan woman when she gets to the well and sees Jesus who asks for a drink of water. I'm not sure exactly how she recognizes that he is a Jew. I don't know if it's something to do with his dress. Uh, I doubt that he has a sign hanging around his neck that says, I'm a Jew. But there's something that distinguishes him from Samaritan men. And she recognizes right away that he is a Jew. Obviously, he knows who she is. And he can suspect who she is for a number of different reasons. There are a number of different items that we don't understand that are inferred. And we don't have to know the reason for all of them. But we do need to sort of think about it a little bit here. She comes to the well in the middle of the day. That's not the normal time to draw water at the well. Normally, water was drawn in the morning or in the evening uh, to water the animals and that type of thing. The middle of the day, obviously, is the hottest time of the day. Uh, The fact that she's doing it in the middle of the day acknowledges that she is indeed an adulteress, that she is indeed shunned by her own people for doing things that she should not have done, So she comes to the well in the middle of the day so that she doesn't have to be ridiculed by the other women. Or it could very well be that the other women simply will not allow her to come to the well during the morning or during the evening. That we don't know. But she comes in midday, which indicates something to Jesus as well, I would think, with regards to her background. She's been shunned by other other women. Now the meeting here is simple enough. Jesus simply asks for a drink of water. Keep in mind that Jesus, although he was the Son of God, he is also man. And he has needs like all men have, like all women have. Food, water, shelter, that type of thing. And so he's thirsty. As I said before, I don't understand why all the disciples went to the city. But there has to be a reason here somewhere. Now notice in the next reply, he doesn't even really... He doesn't really get into what she asks of him. He gets onto something else. Here he is being contrary again. She could have just drew the water. He could have just answered that he didn't have a rope. He didn't have a jug. He didn't have a, a drawing pail, whatever it happened to be. And she could have got him the water and they would have been on their way. But that's not what he came for. He came for a purpose. And I believe that His need to go through Samaria was drawn to the purpose that was provided to him by the Lord. And there is a verse coming up that we will hang our hats on as we go a little bit further. Jesus knew that she had a bigger need. She was here to draw water, but he knew that her need was one of correcting her sin, of coming to the Lord. In most of the stories that we've heard Up until now, people have followed Christ trying to find out what his purpose was. Christ, on the other hand, has been trying to do the will of the Father who sent him to not lose any of his sheep. All that were given to him, he wants to bring back to the Lord. He wants to bring to the Father. And this lady, obviously, is a lady that represents a whole faction in the world of people who have sinned. Jesus knows that, and he turns the discussion to that. He comes directly out and he says that he's the one that can give her living water. Not just water that she gets out of the well, but living water. If somebody said that to you today, what would that mean? Now, you've read the Bible, so you have a little bit of an idea. But if somebody came up to you and said, I can give you a bucket of living water, that will never run dry, that will always run clear, pure, that will meet your every need. You'd think he was crazy. You can get water in the top. You can turn that on any time of the day and get water. Chlorinated, fluoridated and all. But he can give you living water. Just what does that mean? What did that mean to her? Probably not an awful lot. But she sensed that something was different that he was offering her something different. She talks about how is he going to draw this water. She's still looking ahead as woman to man. She's still trying to figure out the physical aspects of getting the water out of the well. But Jesus is looking up to the Lord and saying, What purpose do you have for me here, Lord, with this woman? Both acted responsibly and according to what had drawn them there. Note, too, that this is Jacob's well. If you can remember back to the stories way, way back about Jacob and uh, his children and the well that was given to them, she refers to Jacob as someone elevated above her position. Certainly most people, if not all people, would be above her position. But she calls him our father. That Jacob and his sons and his livestock even drank from this well. She thinks of it as something special. Jacob may have provided his children with physical water, but Jesus offers in this arid land living water, spiritual water, in a spiritual wasteland. And she is part of and representative of that spiritual wasteland. Jesus, the contrarian, once again points out that he wants water, but that she needs a different type of water than the water he's seeking. And he is willing to give it to her. And he's simply asking for water. But she needs more. She has the means to draw that water, but she does not have the means to draw the living water. And this is the difference. And this is the contrarianism that Jesus continues to point out to her. Jesus tries another approach here too. She still doesn't know who she's speaking to. She sees it a little bit different. She she knows that there's something strange about this man, but she can't quite get it. She still thinks it's about the water coming out of the well. So he tries a different approach, and he passes on the question about her marital status. Now, why would he do that? It's a little bit obvious, as I said before, that She's someone who's on the lower rungs of society. He can probably guess as probably 99 out of 100 men could guess if they'd have seen her there at that time of the day. He asks her about her marital status, and then he answers her even more fully than she answers him. She simply says that she's not married. And he tells her, you're right. And then he goes on to tell her the details of her life, that she's had five husbands, And that the husband or the man that she's with now is not her husband. And she is amazed. And she calls him a prophet. She's elevated him to a position of prophet. Because he seems to know above and beyond most people, if not all people. Why is this living water so important to him? I wonder if she wondered that. I wonder if she wondered why he wants to give her living water, but yet he wants the water out of the well. She must be starting to question herself when she's sitting with a man who has the answers to all of her questions, who seems to know about her life, who seems to know more than she knows about what's going on. She has sinned and she continues to sin. But I don't think at this particular point she realizes that she needs forgiveness for that sin. She is still looking to the past and what is in front of her, but she's starting to look above. She sees Jesus as a prophet. So the contrarianism is starting to work. And this is the verse that I believe Jesus was hanging his hat on. It says, But the hour is coming now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. And Jesus is trying to find those people who are seeking him. Who are seeking the truth in spirit. She talks about worshiping. If he is a prophet, he must know the answers to where she should be worshiping the Lord. Should it be on, the, on that mount, Mount Gerizim? Should it be in Jerusalem where the Jews are? She's looking for a physical place. But Jesus points out to her that it's not important where she worships, but who she worships and how she worships. She needs to worship the one who can save her from her sins. She needs to look upward, and she's starting to do that. Jesus says that the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth to worship Him. The woman hasn't done that yet. He still is trying to get across to her who He is. And finally, He comes right out and He says, looking upward, I, I who you speak to am He, the Messiah. She tells Him directly, Or he tells her directly, I should say. Do you think she's got it figured out now? He's told her all these wonderful things. He's talked to her about living water. I'm sure she still doesn't understand it. He's told her straight blank that he is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. She says that she knows the Messiah is coming. He tells her, That he is the Messiah. Does she figure it out? Being the contrarian that he was, Jesus puts the law behind him and opts for grace and compassion for all. He could have been bothered by the fact that she was a Sumerian, the fact that she was a woman, the fact that she was an adulterer. But I think that this was important and foundational to Jesus' walk on earth. He wasn't out there to save the kings. He wasn't out there to save those who were in high positions. He was out there to save all who had sinned. And who reflected that image more than the woman at the well? And we all belong to sit there at that well, whether we're woman or man, because each and every one of us were sinners, our sinners. We failed. We fell short in the eyes of the Lord. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he was drawn to Samaria. It didn't do him any good to go to the areas that have been traveled over and over and over again. Because it wasn't about just Jews anymore. It was about Gentiles as well. It was about all peoples of all nations, regardless of color or creed. Jesus was there for a purpose. And here are a few items that have to have to do with Jesus' purpose. He was there to do the will of the Father in John six thirty eight it says, "For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me." Also in John eight forty two it says, "Then behold, I have come down to do your will, O God." Pardon me, that's in Hebrews 10, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And Jesus said to them in John 8.42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but of he who sent me. So he tells you that he is doing the will of God. He has come to bear witness to the truth. In John 18.37, Pilate asks him, So you are the king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am the king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He is hoping the woman will listen to his voice. He is hoping that you will listen to his voice. If you haven't already heard it, he hopes that you will hear it. He is also to call sinners to repentance. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And as I said before, in the eyes of the people of that time, this lady would certainly have been amongst the greatest of the sinners. She certainly was on the bottom rung of the ladder when it came to society, when it came to goodness, and things done properly, she would be down near the bottom. And finally, he came to seek and save the lost. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now this is not the complete list of the reasons why Jesus came to earth. But it's a summary of what he's trying to portray to this woman at the well. And she can certainly learn from it. And we can learn from it. So when I ask you to put yourself in her position for a moment, think of what she was going through. Think of what you go through. Think of the sins that you have performed and may be yet to perform. And that living water that Christ is offering to you. Now Christ is indeed a contrarian. And we see it here. He's not living like the world lives. Certainly his disciples would not have went through Samaria. I doubt that very much. He goes through Samaria. Certainly the disciples would not have talked to this lady. They probably would have found a different way to draw the water. And even his disciples later on in this chapter, we didn't read it, but they don't get it. They show up. They don't even discuss the woman. They ask him if he is hungry. They have food and he responds, he has received all the food he needs. They're bewildered. They're looking straight ahead and they say, where did he get food? Did somebody come with food for him? They don't look up. They don't realize that he was here for a purpose and that that purpose feeds him. Finding lost souls gives Jesus the energy, the will, the desire to continue on because he's there for the purpose of the Lord. A contrarian. So, what can we learn from the woman? The woman was open to this message. She didn't understand she was going to receive it when she came to the well. I'm sure she was hoping to come to the well and nobody would be there. And here's a man that asks her a simple question, asks her for a drink of water. And that conversation develops into something that leads her to do the will of God. And how does she do the will of God? Well, we don't know fully whether she becomes a believer or not. But she goes to the town and she speaks to the men and tells them the story of what happened to her. She tells them that this man knew everything about her, that this man offered her living water, that this man did this and this man did that. What is she doing? She's planting the seed. She's the mustard seed that we hear of in the Bible so many times. She has planted that seed. And now the Lord is going to make it water and make it grow. Those people rushed to Jesus and it says later on in the chapter that many came to know him. All because an adulterous woman spread the seed of good news of the Messiah. So what can we learn from that? We don't have to be the king. We don't have to be the prime minister or the president. We don't have to be a billionaire, the Bill Gates of the world. We just have to be ourselves. The Lord doesn't want us to be anything more than that. But he does want us to be obedient and faithful to him. And if we are, we can plant that mustard seed just like this woman did. Think of it. There's 40, 45 of us here today. If we planted 45 mustard seeds today, how much could be reaped and sown? At the end of the day. So there's much to this. And even though there's not a name like there were in some of the other sermons. You can put your name to the woman at the well. So it is Jesus and Wade at the well. It is Jesus and Lindsay at the well. Jesus and Joe at the well. Whatever it is, it's Jesus. And as long as you focus on Jesus, you'll have it right. So Jesus is indeed that contrarian. And as I said, I hope that each and every one of you considers yourself a contrarian as well. I want to close here by just reading a quote to you from Rabbi Sekerius. I think he sums up this story really, really well. He says that the Samaritan woman grasped what he said with fervor that came from an awareness of a real need. The transaction was fascinating. She had come with a bucket. He sent her back with a spring of living water. She had come as a reject. He sent her back being accepted by God himself. She came wounded. He sent her back whole. She came laden with questions. He sent her back as a source for all answers. She came living a life of quiet desperation. She ran back overflowing with hope. The disciples missed it all. It was lunchtime for them. Simple as that. I hope that you do not miss it, that you do not consider it lunchtime, that it's okay that we haven't had the barbecue yet because it's the woman at the well that's important. And if you read that over and over and over again and you put your name there instead of the Samaritan woman, you'll get the gist of what Jesus is trying to do. He wants you to come to that living water. Second Corinthians 5 16 to 18 summarizes what we've just went through. It says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. All because of Jesus. Let's just bow in prayer. Lord, the words that we have heard today, the ability that we have to go through your passages in Scripture, your words, your thoughts, your purposes for us, is just awe-inspiring. Lord, at every turn, we are invited to come back to you. Knowing that we have that sinful nature... You are patient and loving and gracious towards each and every one of us, Lord. And these three verses that we just read sum up exactly what the woman at the well is all about. Understanding that we are no longer flesh when we come to you. Understanding that although we need water, we need living water far worse. And your son provides that to us. Through grace and compassion and through his righteousness... We have the hope and the assurance that we need to continue on. Lord, may we continue to be faithful and obedient to you in all that we do, putting you first and understanding that you are truth and that you are indeed the source of that living water. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you.